As some time ago, I was flipping through my choices of something to watch on Netflix, and I came across this documentary about the forensic, uh, or the use of forensic science to help solve some criminal cases. So in this one particular episode, there's a man named Charles who, uh, it was late at night, he picked up a hitchhiker, and the hitchhiker was wanting to go to a certain place, and uh, Charles was saying, well, I'm going this far, I'll take you, you know, to where I'm going. And uh, so they got to the point where Charles tells the hitchhiker, okay, this is as far as I'm going on this road. And the hitchhiker took exception to that. There was a scuffle, and uh, Charles escaped. They both uh, you know, got out of the pickup truck and, you know, were about to duke it out. And uh, Charles agreed, okay, I'll take you. And so he ran out of the truck and locked the doors and took off. <laughs> and uh, drove down the road for a, a, a little ways and uh, was really shaken by what had happened, wasn't exactly sure what to do. He didn't want to go straight home in case somehow the hitchhiker might be able to get a ride with somebody else and, and follow him home. Uh, but after driving around uh, the area, for a little while, he decides to uh, go home. He lived in a trailer, uh, which was set up next to his mother's farmhouse, you know, kind of out in, in the country. And when he got there, he's pulling up the driveway, he, he noticed his, the, the, the lights in his mother's house were out, and he saw a man walking by. And he also noticed broken glass on the, 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 the door on the side. And uh, he said to himself, I know that man. Um, I gave him a ride to where I just let him off. I wonder what he's done. So he called 911 right away and the police came. And when the police came, uh, they entered into Charles' mother's house and, and found her in a pool of blood. She had been stabbed several times with a screwdriver. She was dead. And... The police, uh, you know, the first person they're going to talk to, of course, is going to be Charles. And so they ask him some questions, and he explains, well, you know, I picked up this hitchhiker, and I think that was him uh, who, you know, killed my mother. And the police aren't buying it. It just seems to be too fantastic of a story. And so uh, they take him downtown uh, to the police station where they can have... Uh, more effective uh, conversation, we'll say. And so as they are um, interviewing or interrogating Charles, uh, he, he gives the, the same story. You know, he picked up this hitchhiker and uh, gave him a ride to as far as he wanted to go, and there was a scuffle, and then he just goes over that again, and the uh, policeman said, uh, Charles, I hear the words, but you're not making any sense. No one would believe that story. Uh, only an idiot would believe that. Not even an idiot would believe that. And Charles insists that he was telling the truth. Well, there is no way to prove anything, uh, so they couldn't hold Charles. They couldn't arrest him on suspicion. Uh, but the the detective on duty said, look, we're going to go back to, to the crime scene at your mother's house and we're going to get the DNA samples of uh, the, the blood that was left there. Uh, you know, they found some handprints on the, on, on the rails by, by the stairs and uh, uh, don't leave town. So they collected the samples and uh, 
did the testing and found out that the, the DNA on the, the, the blood samples in Charles' mother's house did not match those of Charles. And so they thought, okay, so what he is doing, this guy is guilty. So what he has done, he, he's probably, he might have hired this guy to kill his mother, you know, to collect the insurance money, to collect his inheritance early. Uh, that's probably what I did. That's the motive he would have had to have. Otherwise, uh, a, a, a lonely 73-year-old woman living by herself in a farmhouse, you know, she really couldn't have any enemies, could she? So uh, Charles remained the chief suspect until years later when a DNA testing became more sophisticated and there was a, a, a national... Uh, data bank of DNA on file. And so they decided to go ahead and, and run uh, these uh, samples of DNA they found at the crime scene and see what came up. And lo and behold, there was a match. And as they investigated the match, uh, they discovered that this was a career criminal who was living just a few miles from the police station, just a few miles from where you know, Charles lived. And um, so they went to pick him up, but he wasn't home. Eventually, they did find him. And when they brought him into the station for questioning, they made a startling discovery that the composite sketch that the police drew, according to Charles' description of this man that he had picked up as a hitchhiker, looked remarkably like the guy that they went to pick up. And uh, eventually, they you know, questioned the man and uh, made a, a deal with him. So, look, if you want to avoid the death penalty, uh, you need to come clean. And uh, so he did, and he explained that, yeah, he, he did do the deed. He, he did murder this older woman. Uh, he had simply gone to the first uh, house that he could find that didn't have any lights on, thinking he could take shelter there for the night and when the woman came downstairs he was afraid that she would be able to identify him so he felt like he had to kill her. There's some things that are just really too fantastic or too hard to believe to actually believe. Can you imagine how Joseph must have felt. He's engaged, he's betrothed. Uh, betrothal in those days is different from an engagement in, in our time. You know, in, in our time you get engaged and you know you set the date and you wait for the big day. Uh, in New Testament times there was a betrothal first where you would go and you would take vows before witnesses witnesses and say that it is your intention to marry this person and then there was a waiting time between the betrothal and the wedding and the the the, the waiting time was to you know make sure that the the, the bride elect uh, was faithful to her husband her husband to be and so when it becomes evident clearly evident that Mary is with child uh, Joseph doesn't know how to handle that you know, he could have hauled her out there uh, before the elders and had um, Mary banished, um, according to the Old Testament, you know, someone who commits uh, uh, adultery at this point in the relationship uh, could be stoned, but they weren't 
observing capital punishment uh, for adultery in those days. Nevertheless, he could have made a public spectacle of her, but he determined to just put her away quietly. Uh, but, I mean, can you imagine the conversation that might have taken place between Mary and Joseph when Mary explains, Joseph, it's not what you think. <laughs> you see, I, I am pregnant, I admit, but it's by the Holy Spirit. An angel came to me and told me what was going to happen. And uh, what do you think Joseph is thinking? Yeah, right. I hear the words, but you're not making any sense. Only an idiot would believe something like that. No, not even an idiot would believe that. Right? But then, same angel, Gabriel, who came to Mary to announce to her that she would conceive and bring forth a child, a son, and call his name Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. What a fantastic story that is. The same angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, Do not be afraid to take Mary for your wife, for the child that is, that is in her is by the Holy Spirit. All right, now he's got to determine, am I also an idiot? <laughs> uh, but Joseph believed the angel. He believed in the virgin birth. My objective this morning is to state why it is so important for us to believe in the virgin birth. It's not only the miraculous birth of Jesus that we acknowledge, but the miraculous conception of Jesus uh, by a virgin. So uh, let's read about it in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 36. You'll find that on page 855 in your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. So page 855, Luke chapter 1. Verses 26 through 36. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his Kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, How can this be since I have not been intimate with a man? The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth, even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. Then the angel left her. Well, the virgin birth is a story that many think only an idiot 
would believe. But actually, there are some very good reasons to believe that the virgin birth is true. And I've categorized these reasons uh, into uh, three categories. I guess I use that word twice. Uh, there's the, the philosophical, the theological, and uh, the prophetic. Uh, so let's talk about the philosophical reasons for believing in the virgin birth first. So here's the question we have to ask. Is God real and active in the world? The virgin birth screams to us and says, yeah, he is. God is real and he is active in the world. But those who do not believe that God is real and that the virgin birth is just not possible uh, because they are convinced that the universe is a closed system. So uh, let, let's think of it in, in terms like this. Uh, those who do not believe in God see the universe uh, as a, a closed system. Well, we'll call it a, a box. That everything that exists is already in that box. And anything that creates energy is already there. Nothing will ever come into it. In other words, nothing can come into the box and nothing can ever leave the box. It's a closed box, a closed system. Um, everything is subject to the laws of physics and to cause and effect. Uh, Carl Sagan uh, famously said, uh, the cosmos or the universe is all that is or was or ever will be. But if a miracle happens, um, that is something that is contrary to the laws of physics were to take place, uh, something that the natural processes uh, that are in the box cannot account for, you know what that means is that there is a God. So philosophically speaking, if you believe that the universe is a box and nothing else exists outside the box, then you will not believe the virgin birth. It just cannot happen. And if the universe is closed, the very idea of a virgin birth is absolutely ridiculous. You know, every Christmas, uh, there are weekly news magazines and various editorials that engage in a collective gasp that so many Americans could believe such an unscientific, supernatural doctrine. Now, for some, the belief that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin is nothing less than evidence of intellectual dimness. One writer at the New York Times uh, put the lament plainly. He said, quote, The faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. So, does belief in the virgin birth make Christians you know, less intellectual? Are we saddled with an indefensible doctrine? Can a true Christian deny the virgin birth? Or is the doctrine of the virgin birth an essential component of the gospel that's revealed to us in scripture? One day C.S. Lewis was sitting in his office uh, in the English department at Oxford when a friend who was an unbeliever uh, just stopped by. And um, it was Christmas time 
And while they were sitting there, they could hear the carolers uh, outside uh, in the courtyard singing uh, uh, Christmas songs. And the, 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 as uh, uh, C.S. Lewis and his friends were speaking, uh, they could hear the, the, the lyrics of one particular carol that contained the words about the virgin birth. And um, the unbelieving friend uh, said to uh, C.S. Lewis, isn't it good that we know better than they did? And C.S. Lewis said, what do you mean? And the friend said, well, isn't it good that we now know more than they did. Well, I'm afraid that you'll have to explain, uh, replied Dr. Lewis. And so his friend put it this way. Well, isn't it good that we now know that virgins don't have babies? And C.S. Lewis looked at him incredulously and said, don't you think they knew that back then? That's the whole point. <laughs> the fact that Jesus is born again is intended to be a shock to your system. Now, nothing like this ever happened before. You know, they didn't have you know, artificial insemination or you know, fertility drugs or you know, anything like that. But, I mean, even if you did, you still couldn't you know, create a... Um, a baby outside uh, what a man contributes uh, in, a, in a virgin. So, I mean, even Mary wondered if this was possible. So she asked, you know, how can this be since I'm a virgin? So let's look at uh, verses 34 and following. She says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. The virgin birth is a clear statement that there is a God, and that nothing is impossible with him, whether you believe that the universe is a closed system or not. Since we're speaking philosophically here, um, by the way, if you want to speak philosophically at a higher level, uh, we have some people here who are very well equipped uh, philosophy professor, philosophy majors and minors and people who just love philosophical thought. You come to me later if you don't know who they are and I'll point them out to you. Some of the most intelligent people uh, here. Uh, so, okay, it's Grant, Jared, and John. <laughs> but since I'm doing the speaking, I'm going to speak philosophically on the level that, that I know. And, and, and here's the reasoning. If, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, then who was his father? If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he had to have had a human father, right? Therefore, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, he cannot be God. He's a human being with a sin nature, just like the rest of us. 
That is, if he is not born of a virgin. All right, so at this point, uh, we're, we're beginning to move from thinking philosophically to thinking theologically. So let's go ahead and talk about the theological reasons for believing the virgin birth. When you mention the word theology, most Christians immediately lose interest. Maybe not most, but some. Uh, for them, theology is intimidating, boring, and irrelevant. Of course, it's true that some doctrines are more important than others. Uh, but it's curious how some Christians will argue over things that they consider to be core beliefs when in reality they're just preferences. Um, <clears throat> for example, uh, there are some denominations that uh, observe uh, three sacraments. You know, we, we recognize baptism and the Lord's Supper, those two. Uh, but there are some denominations that recognize foot washing as a, a, a third sacrament. So uh, there was this church, uh, it was a free will Baptist church that observed uh, foot washing. And they uh, were, were discussing it and the significance of it. And, and then this question came up and said, which foot do we wash first, you know, the, the left or the right? And there was a, a, an argument uh, that uh, erupted. And uh, some said the left and some said the right. And so the church split. And so the church that split off and went and formed their own church uh, rightly called the name of their church the Left Foot Free Will Baptist Church. Years ago when we lived in Asheville, I went to a shopping mall kind of a strip mall and there was a, a church that uh, had rented space there they were getting started and uh, the, the name of the church was spelled out the, the King James only uh, the name of the denomination church um, so is that true biblical doctrine when you're arguing whether it's the left foot or the right foot that you wash first in a foot washing service or what version of the Bible that you use, or, or, or are those the major things? You know, true Bible doctrine is something that transcends both time and culture, and it speaks to all generations in all places of the world at all times. This is the criteria for biblical doctrine. And so in talking about the virgin birth, we're not talking about something insignificant, like uh, which foot or which version of the Bible you uh, prefer. We're talking about something that matters to the church at all times and all places because it is essential doctrine. The virgin birth is essential doctrine. It's spelled out for us in the ancient creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, we re recite that every week because it is an essential doctrine. However, you might not be convinced of that. Uh, you might be thinking that the only really essential doctrine uh, is the, the, the doctrine of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, for some, that's all there is to the gospel. Uh, the birth of Jesus is not really part of the gospel. All that really matters is uh, his his death and his resurrection, and that the virgin birth just really isn't all that important. And, and you might think that, 
but the virgin birth matters. It matters because of what it testifies to. The virgin birth testifies to three absolutely relevant realities. Number one, it testifies that scripture is true. Number two, it testifies that Jesus is God. And number three, it testifies to the salvation that we have in Christ. So let's talk about uh, the, the first one of those of how the virgin birth testifies that the scriptures are true. The text tells us that Mary was a virgin, but the text also tells us that Mary was pregnant. This is what the Bible says. Um, and if you believe it, that's good. But if you don't believe it, what you're saying is, uh, is, is this. You're saying that your own intellect and what you've been told uh, is more reliable than what Scripture says. You know, if you discount the virgin birth, uh, what else might you discount? If you can't trust what the Bible says about the virgin birth, can you really trust what the Bible says about the resurrection of Christ or of the love of Christ? If you can't believe the first miracle, how can you believe the last miracle? And if you can't believe what the Bible says about the virgin birth, how can you believe what it says about salvation? Virgin birth also, besides uh, testifying that scripture is true, it also testifies that Jesus is deity. You know, when Joseph found out Mary was pregnant, you know, he assumed what you and I would assume, that she had been unfaithful. We've pretty much talked about uh, all of that. And so uh, Joseph, crushed as he was, as he was decided to just uh, dismiss um, Mary without a, a, a lot of fanfare, but the angel came and Joseph believed in the virgin birth and he took Mary as his wife. And we wonder if that prophecy from Isaiah 7 would have come to Joseph's mind about the coming of uh, a, a child from a virgin. That Joseph took Mary as his wife. He did not have relations with her until after Jesus was born and Jesus was conceived by a virgin and she gave uh, birth to uh, Jesus as a virgin, meaning that Jesus has to be God because there was no seed from the man. How important is it to believe that Jesus is God? that he is deity. Well, if he's not, then he can't provide salvation. If the virgin birth is a lie, then Jesus can never reverse the curse and save sinners. In Romans 5, we read that when Adam sinned, the whole human race fell. Uh, that depravity was passed down through Adam. And uh, it was passed down through Adam and, and not through Eve. Look, look with me here at Romans 1.19. That the whole section, uh, that should be 5.19, I'm sorry. Um, Romans chapter 1.19 is good too, but uh, the, uh, the, the verse I want to uh, highlight for us is, is this one. The, the whole section is about how uh, Adam represented us in, in the garden and uh, how Christ represents us uh, 
in, in life and death. But here's the verse four, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, that's the first Adam. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, the, the, the human race did not fall when Eve sinned. That's because even Eve uh, did not represent the entire human race, but Adam did. Now, theologians refer uh, to this as the uh, federal headship of Adam. So sin was passed down through the man. And at this point, I can hear some of the, the women thinking, I knew that. I know that sin comes down through the man. That's obvious. Anyway, this is why Jesus could not have had an earthly father. If Jesus had an earthly father, then the sin nature of Adam would have passed down to him. Uh, by the way, if Mary had somehow uh, spontaneously generated Jesus, uh, she could only have produced a daughter because there's no Y chromosome in the woman. The Y chromosome comes from the man. And that's what's so important about this verse that says she will bear a son. So to gain salvation for his people, Jesus had to become the second Adam. That is, he had to come in our likeness so that he could obey God perfectly and succeed where Adam failed as our representative. Now, where did Jesus represent us? First thought that comes to mind is, well, he represented us on the cross. You know, when, when, when Christ died, we also died. When, 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 when Christ died, he, he paid the penalty for our sins, and thus it was credited to our account. And if that comes to mind right away, that's great. But that's not the only place where Jesus represented us. He represented us all the way through life. You see, un unless Jesus obeys the law perfectly and doesn't slip up once, then he does not qualify to be the sacrificial lamb. So Jesus represents us in life as well as in death. And so in order for Jesus to have lived a perfect life, he would have had to have been born without a sin nature. Thus, Jesus had to have been born of a virgin. You see, apart from the virgin birth, there is no gospel. So as you can see, there are some good theological reasons for uh, believing in the virgin birth. And um, now I want to talk about the last category of reasons to believe in the virgin birth, uh, the category of the prophetic, uh, we'll, we'll call them prophetic signs. You know, uh, earlier in this series of uh, miraculous births, we talked about the um, you know, miraculous birth of Samson, of Samuel, and then last week of John the Baptist. And in each case, uh, the, the mother had been barren, uh, but God intervened and a son was born to each of these women. Uh, but as miraculous as these births were, none of them can compare to the absolutely miraculous birth of Jesus. Actually, the miraculous conception of Jesus. 
Jesus was conceived by a virgin. He was born to a virgin. Nothing like that had ever happened before. It's absolutely impossible. You know, everything in the Old Testament points to the coming of Christ. In Luke chapter 24, when Jesus and his resurrected state is walking down the road to Emmaus, he comes upon uh, two companions, two travelers, and uh, they are talking about the events of the past few days about uh, the death, burial, and the resurrection. And Jesus, uh, you know, pretended like he didn't know what was going on. And uh, so they have a conversation. And, and in that conversation, Jesus begins where they were and begins to explain how the, all the law and the prophets are, are pointing to the Messiah, how everything in Scripture, everything in Old Testament is pointing to him. And so no matter where you pick up the Old Testament and start reading, everything there is some kind of a sign that says the Messiah is over here. If you look carefully enough, look deeply enough, spend enough time on it, you're going to see the Messiah. You're going to see Christ in all of Scripture. Let me point out just a few, just a few. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. That's God speaking to the, the serpent in the garden, that uh, he will crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That happened, that's, that's a, a picture of what happens at the cross. Remember the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. Look at the stars of the sky. Even when he was childless, or he and Sarah were childless, so shall your descendants be if you can number the stars. Uh, the book of Judges, how we have been looking through that and, and, and seeing how these judges are uh, faint pictures of the Christ who is to come. Uh, we, we get uh, e eventually to King David, uh, the, the one uh, through whose uh, line the Messiah would be born. We come to the Passover, and which is vividly displayed in the Last Supper and in the offering up of the, the, the Passover lamb. We won't go into a whole lot of detail on that. Just want you to see that here's a, a, a sign of neon lights Shining, blinking, on and off. Look, look, look. Look at Christ here in Scripture. It's all over the place. And now we come to Mary. The angel has news for her. You have found favor with God. You will conceive of the Holy Spirit and will bring forth a son. He will be great. Now you would think, once Mary got hold of this and realized that she was pregnant and it was really going to happen, that everything would be just a nice smooth road for her to walk down. That she would be revered uh, by uh, her family and her neighbors. Uh, an angel came and told her this wonderful thing's happening. Uh, did that happen? No, I mean, Mary wasn't even sure that Joseph would still want her. So Mary had to, she, she had to, to, to live with a level of trust that she had never had to live with before. She, she has to trust that God will somehow 
provide for her if Joseph doesn't want her. And uh, even as she does, uh, she still has to, sh uh, to face the shame and the humiliation, even though it's a great honor. It, it, it still has shame and humiliation connected to it. And in the history of the world, yet nothing like this had ever happened. And now, as she lives this life of faithful obedience, you know what Mary is doing? As she embraces the reality that within her, the Christ child is coming. And when he does come, she will wrap her arms around that baby. And as she does, she is also wrapping her arms around this Christ on the cross. You see, the cross and glory go together. It's because the way of glory is the way of the cross. And so, on this last Sunday before Christmas, we come to the end of our Advent series on miraculous births, but actually, there's one more miraculous birth that still may not have taken place. That would be your miraculous birth. Not your first one. Uh, I mean, that's miraculous too. I mean, I mean, just the, the birth of a baby is a miracle, isn't it? I mean, unless God intervenes, uh, you know, it's just not going to happen. But it's your second birth that is especially miraculous. So how does that happen? How does that come about? Well, first of all, you cannot cause yourself to be born again any more than you can cause yourself to be born the first time has to be done for you. You know, when the seed of God, which is the word of God, uh, penetrates your heart and puts down root, roots, uh, God will cause you to be born again. I want to look at, uh, uh, well, I didn't get First Peter um, on the slide, so I'll, I'll read it for you. In First Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, the apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The second birth, which comes about through the second Adam, is truly Miraculous. And so, what does this mean for you? Do you just, you know, kind of sit around and wait for the Spirit of God to do His work and um, you do nothing? Well, the Spirit of God is always at work and He works primarily through His Word. In uh, John chapter 1, uh, verses 11 uh, through 13. Here's what he says. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the power or the authority to become children of God 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And while it's true that only God can cause you to be born again, it's clear that there is something that you can do if you will receive him, if you will believe in his name. He will give you the power to become a child of God. What a story. <laughs> and it's all true. As impossible as it may be. And yet, all things are possible with God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we acknowledge that this story, uh, the, the story of the, of the conception of your son born to a virgin, is just too wonderful for us. Uh, we can't get our minds around it. It's, uh, it's an absolute miracle. Uh, something like this just cannot happen in a closed universe or closed system. But you have invaded our system. You have invaded our world. You have invaded our lives and have revealed to us uh, that this child who uh, was born to the Virgin Mary um, is indeed the Messiah, Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God in the flesh. And because you lived a perfect life, you lived the life that we should have lived. You died the death that we should have died. As our representative, as our second Adam, we're so grateful uh, that you came to represent us, to represent us perfectly so that we might have life in your name. Uh, through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.